Let's do it. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. All the people that were working for Main Man were unusual. We were loud, ugly Americans, basically. Main Man, an interesting story, a very entertaining story, a very long, wonderful adventure. Hello and welcome to episode 55 in our series exploring the history of Main Man, the management rights company which was renowned in the 70s for transforming the business of rock and roll. The management team pioneered outrageous and often controversial promotions and marketing techniques that soon became the benchmark for the decadence and indulgences that are now part of rock folklore. I kind of built my whole PR campaign around the sexuality, to tell you the truth, because it built such a mystique. Well, is he or isn't he? You know, I mean, here's this woman, hetero, saying he's straight, and then everybody is saying he's gay, and what is he, you know? Main Man worked with a diverse range of clients that included Amanda Lear, Mick Ronson, John Mellencamp, Mott the Hoople, Danica Lesby, Mick Ralphs, Iggy Pop, Marianne Faithful, David Bowie, and Lou Reed. There was this whole glam thing going on, so I just put myself in that head. It's not like I had to go very far to do it, you know. I have about a thousand selves running around. It's easy. It's always fun to dress up. As we continue to mark the 50th anniversary of the rise of Ziggy Stardust, we're talking with some of the key main man people who were part of this extraordinary rock and roll adventure. In the last episode, the legendary Cherry Vanilla explained how she came to be part of Bowie's inner circle that stormed across America, creating as much media attention as possible for this fascinating new force in music. As you heard, Cherry was part of Warhol's world in New York, joining the cast of Pork in London. She was friends with many of the Warhol acolytes that inspired Lou Reed's Transformer album, recorded back in the summer of 72, produced by Bowie and Mick Ronson during a break in the Ziggy Stardust tour. So it's a great opportunity to hear firsthand about the influence of Transformer. Take a walk on the wild side, exactly. Um, Holly Woodlawn, Jackie Curtis. Yeah, um, Lou, well, Lou even lived with a... I guess, I don't know what she was, not exactly a transsexual, I don't know, but he even lived with a woman who was a man, or uh, I don't know. I don't I, I never got very close to Lou. I wrote a poem once in a poetry book, and in the title I had Lou Reed, God, the Devil, and when I met Lou, he said, Oh God, oh God, you call me the devil. I said, What? I never called you the devil. And he said, oh, yes, that's in your poetry book. And he was afraid of me. He thought I was some kind of a witch or something. So I never got very close to Lou. And I, I don't know. I liked his music, but I didn't like junkies. I, 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 I didn't like heroin and speed. And I didn't like those kind of drugs. I like psychedelics and pot and all that. And so I never really meshed with Lou very much. But... That album, yes, did sum up, especially Lou's scene, because he was more involved with those kind of drugs and those kind of druggies than I ever was. Although Hollywood and Jackie Curtis, all those people were my friends, but I never got that kind of high with them or anything. It's funny because I was like more of an uptown girl um, who was sort of introduced to down, downtown, where these people were more genuine they lived on the street more and they, you know, I had a little bit more stability in my life at that time, even though it might have been part-time jobs, DJing and whatnot. But so 
I only associated with Lou to a certain degree. And then the funny thing is, one morning I was coming home from an all-night sex thing with somebody. I was on the east side of Manhattan in the 60s where I lived at the time. And I ran into David Bowie, and he was just coming from some all-night thing somewhere. It was probably just after sunrise. And... um so I said, oh, my God, where have you been? He goes, oh, I've been with Lou all night. Don't go near him. He's the devil, Cherry. He's the devil. And it's funny because Lou was, you know, saying I called him the devil. Now Bowie is telling him, don't go near him. Don't go near him. But then Bowie wound up hanging out with him a lot. So if he thought he was the devil, he wanted to hang out with the devil. So, And then over the years... I bumped into Lou here and there, but it was very cold between us, so. (laughs) Lou's walk on the wild side immortalised many of those outsiders that inhabited Warhol's world, like Holly Woodlawn, Candy Darling, Jackie Curtis, Little Joe, and so on. Can you tell us about your experiences with these now legendary characters, with Holly first up? Holly Woodlawn mostly went around as a woman, although she had a five o'clock shadow sometimes because God knows where she slept the night before. But Jackie Curtis was really a perfect example because one day Jackie Curtis would be clean shaven with a short haircut and in nice kind of chinos and a man's shirt. And she'd be very like, I always thought um, she reminded me of um, not an office guy, but uh, just a, a casual kind of office worker very handsome as a guy. But then the next day, she'd be at Max's with the wig and the red lipstick and the dress and the ripped stockings and the high heels. And so she'd go back and forth. So you didn't know one day from the next whether she'd be appearing as a man or a woman. That was like, I'd never seen anybody do that before. I'd known drag queens who only did drag in clubs and were otherwise look like men. But she did... It, for all all occasions, went back and forth. She even played in plays and things as either a man or a woman sometimes. Yeah, Jackie was a prime example of that. And there were others, you know, there were a lot of crazy characters. And that Max's Kansas City was the melting pot that just drew everybody together. And it was so democratic. Everybody got along so great. And nobody questioned each other's sexual attitudes. No, everybody was just cool with each other. It was the only place like that in in New York and probably in America, believe me. It's worth highlighting the importance of Max's Kansas City as a focal point for this very influential crowd. It's one of the first places that David visited when he went to New York to check out a gig by Biff Rose, who Bowie rated highly and had covered a few of his songs. Biff's support act that night was a young guy from New Jersey, Bruce Springsteen. Bowie was really impressed with what he saw and went off and recorded a cover version of It's Hard to Be a Saint in the City and Growing Up, and he was one of the first acts to record Bruce's songs. Max's was very important in the New York scene for a very, very long time, wasn't it? Yes, Max's Kansas City was a completely unique place. I never knew anything like it before or since. Now, mind you, within the Max's Kansas City restaurant, people knew their own boundaries. For instance, when I first went there, I went with advertising clients, and I sat in the front room near the bar, which is where people like me, sort of on the edges of showbiz, hung out. There was a kind of separating partition between that 
and to the part of the uh, restaurant bar room to the south. And back there, behind that petition, were all the artists, like the, you know, the Impressionists and the modern artists of the day who sat over there. And some of them were already quite famous. And they were gay and straight, mixed. Most of the advertising people and so forth where I was first seated were hetero. And the artists were still mostly hetero, too, in those days. But then you went through a little ladies' room, little hallway where they had the coffee machines. That opened into the back room, which was the room that became the most famous, Max's Kansas City back room. It had that uh, red fluorescent lighting, neon, like red neon. It was actually red fluorescent, but it lit the whole room red. And there were booths back there and tables large and small. And... That's the room where the most mixture of gay, straight, was mostly actors and musicians and writers in that back room. And some were straight, some were gay, and yes, everybody melded beautifully back there. And then, of course, eventually you had the upstairs room, which was where the live rock and roll happened. And when that happened... You had people drifting upstairs from all three of the downstairs sections. So it got even more homogenous sort of as it went into the rock world upstairs. But I went from, you know, one room to the next in my sort of career at Max's. The other thing that was amazing about Max's is the clubs that were before and the clubs that followed, you didn't go every night. But Max's was like a private club in a way. It was like your clubhouse where you checked in. So even if you were doing theater that night or you had been at a concert or you would always stop by Max's before you went home just to talk with everybody about your experience of the night, the day, and their experience. It's like you checked in. Even if you only stayed 20 minutes just to say hello to everybody, you checked in. And I I never knew any other club where you did that. David was really enamoured with that whole scene, but Warhol in particular. What was it, do you think, that drew Bowie to Andy? Well, he was attracted to Warhol as the artist himself. He loved Warhol's art. I mean, I think he loved the marketing aspect of Warhol, how Warhol made people like and buy paintings that were things that they saw every day in the supermarket, like a soup can or a Brillo box. How how genius was that to be able to fool people? It was like a joke. It was incredible marketing. Like, here's something you look at every day and you can buy for 49 cents and I'm going to make it a piece of art that's going to be in a museum and you should buy it because it's going to be worth millions of dollars one day. I think Bowie knew all about that and that kind of attracted him. And America, of course, the music, uh, whatever people say where rock and roll started, we always claimed it started in America from the blues and folk and uh, religious music. And now in England, they might say it started there. It went back and forth always, like America got more strengthened when they heard the the Beatles and the Stones and the English music. And I think the English got more um, expanded more when they heard what the musicians in America were doing, like Lou, you know. And um, so 
I think it was a, a nice exchange of, and I'm sure Bowie wanted to be around that. I'm sure he even wanted to go experience America's South, where there was all this blues and country music, and and New York, where there was the druggy music, and California, where there was the folky music. So, I mean, and who didn't want to come to America in those days? It was, you know, land of plenty, land of the free, and where you could make a lot of money. So you had to. And Bowie and the team certainly embraced every aspect of the rock and roll scene at the time. It must have been very exciting. It was an incredible ride. I mean, I enjoyed every moment of it. It was it was the highlight of our lives. I mean, everything I did before or since pales in comparison to, again, I was with some of my best friends doing this incredible thing. This person, we believed in Bowie's talent so much and we wanted to prove to the world that what our taste was. We wanted to prove how smart we were, how we recognized this early on, and how we nurtured it and we promoted it. And we wanted to prove ourselves that we could do something like this. And, you know, we were experimenting every step of the way. We were just doing what came naturally to us and taking big chances. I mean, I made a couple of faux pas. I mean, in the South, because, okay, here's the thing. We didn't have the internet then, and we didn't have Google. And so everything happened so fast. All of a sudden, you know, you meet Bowie, and then they're coming to America on tour. Oh, God. Oh, uh, everything happened so fast. So I didn't have time to go to libraries and look up on the microfiche stuff about Bowie. And they probably wouldn't have had much anyway. It would have been English stuff. And, and, I didn't I didn't even know how many albums he had put out before that that weren't hits or anything like I didn't even bother with that none of us did we were just moving forward as hard and as fast as we could I didn't do research and there was a newspaper in the south that was interviewing me this was before Bowie was to hit town and this newspaper, I didn't know from right-wing to left-wing newspapers in those towns. So I, I, this man was coming to interview me, and it was a big newspaper. I saw it on all the stands. I didn't read it. The guy came at breakfast to interview me, and he said, how did I get my name, Cherry Vanilla? And I said, oh, when I did some propaganda radio for Abby Hoffman. Well, that started a whole thing. And before Bowie came to town, they had actually canceled the concert, stopped selling tickets, and this was a couple of days before the concert. And this newspaper came out with a headline that was something like, left-wing radicals Bowie group go home, or some, something to that effect. It was devastating. I was devastated. I thought, that's it, I'm getting fired, I'm, I've blown the whole thing. <laughs> So Lee happened to be in L.A. at the time. So Lee said, no, no, this is great. This is great. So Lee right away went on the radio in L.A. and told the story of how they shut down the ticket selling and everything, calling us left-wingers and blah, 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 which sold out the California concert way in advance. And then they were pressured to put the tickets back on sale, sold the place out. So... What looked like a faux pas turned out to be 
great PR, which again was something that I think was what Tony DeFries recognized us. Even if we made mistakes, we were breaking ground and we could make use of that mistake by PRing it to death, you know? And DeFries was supporting us the whole way. We couldn't have done it without DeFries, and DeFries couldn't have done it without us, although I think Tony DeFries thinks he probably could have done it without us, but I will say we couldn't have done it without DeFries. But, you know, um, I used to fly out to a club, and Lee would often fly out to a club, or he'd be behind at the concert that was going on in another city. And not only would we check out where the clubs were, uh, we had to check out, you know, where the dry, cl- I did anyway, had to check out where the dry cleaners were, where the parcel post was, where there were office machines, you know, printer printers, restaurants that stayed open late, um, newspapers that were important. We had already befriended in New York all of these rock journalists and L.A. Times and New York Times writers and DJs, uh, Cousin Brucey and John Zachary and gotten them to play his records. and so Now, you know, publicity made Bowie a star because I don't, I don't think he sold a humongous amount of records till something way late, like Let's Dance or something. I don't think he had a number one until much later than the Ziggy Tours. He didn't have a number one in those days. It was the publicity. People were reading about him, hearing about him, gossiping about him, going to the concerts, see the outrageousness. So it wasn't that he right away sold, had a number one, or or, uh, I don't even remember if he ever had a top 10 back then. But the publicity, mistakes, faux pas, inexperience, adventuresome behavior on our part, Tony DeFries seeing it all through and keeping us all sort of in line and check and supplying us with the money we needed and the transportation we needed and everything else. That's what made Bowie a star. Um, And what really made him a star was after all of this publicity, he delivered because his talent was so big and so true. So it wasn't like he got all this publicity and then, oh, well, when you see him, he's really not that great live or blah, blah, blah. No, he delivered. So he got all this upfront notoriety and then the music just kept getting bigger and better and different. And I mean, he went from Ziggy to Aladdin to Diamond Dogs to Thin White Duke. He kept creating new characters. He kept fascinating people, like including new theater. You know, he was a whole new character each time. So you had more to write about. The writers had more to write about. So even if they interviewed him on the last tour, now they could interview a different character on this tour. So it just built and built. And, you know, I don't take credit for it personally, but as a team, we Warhol people and DeFries as a team, I think we did a, you know, a great job. And then how important were the influences that Bowie picked up on the Japanese tour for Ziggy? Well, it added so much to the show because, first of all, Bowie got to see kabuki artists perform in Japan. And, you know, um, that gave him a lot of inspiration. I mean, you know, he used to do that mime stuff and I don't know. It seemed corny at the beginning, doing the mime stuff in the middle of a rock and roll act. But after the kabuki influence, 
you could see it more refined. And then the ripaway costumes, that was a, that was a whole, oh, wow, that really added to the production value of the show. And the costumes were so amazing. And the whole Japanese influ- influence of staging and theater, I, I, I think, expanded Bowie's theatricality. And uh, having the little the assistants dressed all in black like shadow figures, that was they did that on stage in Japan all the time. He took a lot. Bowie took from everything he could. You would notice little bits in his um, songs of something you might have said to him, or you called um, you called a pair of high heels "fuck me pumps," and then you'd hear that in a song. You know, uh, you could see that he picked up. Everything, everything he saw and heard influenced him and he remembered it and he incorporated it into his whole visual and audio trip, you know. He, like a magpie, he, he picked up little bits and pieces from everything and everyone. And I think Japan was, plus, you know, he had that major um, boat trip e- each way and being out in the middle of the ocean under the stars must be pretty influential, too, to writing, and especially on the way back from Japan, thinking about all of it. And he went on the Orient Express. He had a couple of life experiences that I think brought him a lot of, a lot of influence creatively. He had to. Does it still surprise you, 50 years after Ziggy, that his influence is still so huge? Well, you wouldn't believe how many young people still contact us Lee especially, because I'm not on social media, so they have to search a little to find my email and all that. But Lee was especially, he took to social media right away, and he was really in touch with the fans all over the world. And Tony Zanetta is on social media, so he is to an extent. But you can't believe, even with me, who's not as easy to get to, how many fans, I mean 15-year-olds now, um, 16-year-olds who have gotten in touch with me, somehow gotten my phone number. uh, And I always, you know, give time to these young people. And, you know, they they weren't even born, you know, at the time of Bowie. You you just can't believe how many of them know about him. I, I had one dear young man comes to mind. He contacted me when he was 15. And I paid a special attention to him because he said he thought he was ugly and he was going to kill himself. And so I felt an obligation to stay in touch with this boy. And I said to him at one time, are you gay or straight? And he said, I don't know. I said, then I think you're gay. <laughs> but uh, he he's my friend now. He's 27. He's a big success in New York in the business world. And he is gay, of course. But um, he got in touch with me because he was inspired by Bowie, and he wanted to tell his parents. He wanted to come out of the closet. He wanted to be gay, and he was afraid. He hadn't even had sex as a heterosexual yet. And I feel so rewarded when I hear from one of these people, and they turn out to be friends for years. And I think that Bowie, I, the effect that he had on his life, and, you know, some of them now, you know, I mean, they weren't even born till after he practically retired. So, but they know about the early albums. And so he's still influencing teenage boys and girls 
and, and I know it from the emails and the calls I get. And that's, I'm saying mine are limited. I know people like Lee got way more. So it's thrilling for me because it fulfills more than a thing of having done a good job or showing people we were right. Or It means that I helped make this person a star so he could influence, so that he did influence maybe millions of people and kept, kept on and keeps on influencing them with what he left behind, the history and the music. So that's super rewarding. I never had children of my own, and now I feel like these are my kids that I gave good advice to and, uh, and influenced by, by helping Bowie really be their influence. So I'm proud of that. I think in the, in the pop world, he is as big as Warhol now, and there's nobody bigger in the pop world than War- Warhol. And Bowie is right up there with him. I can't think of any. I mean, Elton is great, and, you know, the Stones are great, and the Beatles are s- s- incredible and everything. But in that pop world, pop art, music, uh, he's right up there with Warhol. He'd be, I, he, he must have known that before he died because he was already up there with Warhol before he died. And how about the way he died and how about that making his own death into art? That album, I, I, I can't even listen to two minutes of it without crying my eyes out. I can't. I mean, the way he died and what he gave us in the end, in the, in the state of health he was in, God, um, wow, wow. Yeah, you're right. His influence continues to grow, and it's amazing that 50 years after the creation of Ziggy, we're all still fascinated to hear more about it. Cherry, as always, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much. Be well. And you know you know what I'm so thrilled with your interview? You didn't even ask me about sleeping with him. <laughs> I'm so glad. I'm so glad. <laughs> That's because I already know you did. <laughs> I know. Thanks, Des. But bye, honey. Cherry Vanilla, one of a kind. Great stories. And her book, Lick Me, by the way, is a fascinating behind-the-scenes look at rock's golden era. In the next episode, we revisit another very interesting event in the early days of Ziggy when Bowie went to New York to see Elvis Presley play Madison Square Garden. Tony DeFries tells the full never-before-revealed story about how and why that trip happened. And there are some great pieces of memorabilia from the Ziggy era on the Main Man Label website, along with a huge collection of other historic documents, including articles, telexes, letters and production notes, many of them never seen before, that we're adding to the Main Man Label website each week. It's a great record of a very exciting period in rock history. That's at mainmanlabel.com. And on the website, you can also check out the other episodes in the Main Man series. I'm Des Shaw. This is a Zinc Media MM Tech production. Thanks for listening.